You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Cyber Law and Business Report starts now, only on Cranberry Radio. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now. Please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center here in the heart of Silicon Beach, downtown Santa Monica, California. Please be seated. We've got a great show for you today. Uh, we're going to be covering um, the, imp- the looming um, and effective date of the European Union's General Data Protection Regulation, which goes into effect next year on May 25th, and while we'll, while most people will be celebrating Memorial Day, um, people may not be aware of how, how significant the change will be that will occur at that time. And so we have as our guest um, someone who actually knows a thing or two about this. Uh, our guest, Gabrielle Zanfer Fortuna, um, she actually has worked for the European Data Protection Supervisor in Brussels. Um, dealing with both enforcement and policy matters, and she currently is a fellow uh, with our good friend, the Future of Privacy Forum in Washington, D.C. Um, before we, we cut to Gabriella, there's a breaking news that the White House is preparing a pardon of um, Maricopa County Sheriff um, Joe Arpaio. And just to be clear, Sheriff Arpaio was convicting of, of ignoring a court order to stop racial profiling of Hispanics. And pardoning Ohio in the shadow of Charlottesville, I think, makes clear what side President Trump stands on. If you cannot call for law and order and then reward someone who brazenly disregards the law. And our Constitution is clear. No one is above the law. And pardoning Ohio once again shows how little regard President Trump has for fundamental American values. And I just want to make that clear. But um, without further ado... Let's get to our feature of the day. And Gabrielle, are you with us? Yes. Hello, Bennett. Uh, and hello to everyone who's listening to us out there right now. Thank, thank you very you for much for. Us. Well, thank you for uh, you in, the invitation. You're calling in from DC, correct? Well, uh, not really, uh, because I'm actually based uh, in the Detroit metro area. Um, so I'm a non resident fellow for the FPF. Okay, that's good. We're actually going to be doing a show on startups in Detroit in a couple of weeks, so uh, <laughs> we may we may we may look you up if, if I'm thinking about doing it live from Detroit. But uh, any event, um, thank you for joining us. And I, I guess let's just jump right in. Or first, well, why don't you tell us a bit about your background and how you came to work with the Future Privacy Forum? Uh, yeah, certainly that's uh, that's a very good starting point. Uh, well, I am an EU data protection law expert. Um, I actually prefer to um, think of myself as a uh, data protection geek, let's say. Um, I hold a PhD in law uh, with a thesis on uh, the rights of the data subject, so it's a data protection thesis. Um, 
funny story here. Uh, we uh, call persons whose uh, personally identifiable information uh, is used by others uh, data subjects. You know, it sounds uh, quite technical. Um, so uh, after uh, finalizing my thesis, um, I uh, went to Brussels and started to work for the European Data Protection Supervisor. Uh, that was um, a great experience because it happened uh, to be just when the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, was um, under legislative process. And uh, that was a very, very exciting time to be in Brussels and work in this field. Um, while working for the EDPS, I was also involved in the activity of the Article 29 Working Party. And those listeners that... Um, have had something to do with the EU data protection, um, know very well that the Article 29 Working Party uh, has an influential voice. Um, they issue guidelines on how data protection law uh, should be interpreted and applied. Um, the Article 29 Working Party is uh, um, an, um, a body that is composed of uh, data protection authorities, uh, representatives of data protection authorities from uh, all over Europe. And, and so, go ahead, I'm sorry. Uh, and um, just to follow up on that and how I ended up working for uh, the FPF, uh, last year I moved to the US. Um, and uh, while well, the FPF was uh, an obvious choice for me to um, get in touch with and, and see whether we can uh, work together. And uh, that seems to be a very good idea. And here I am now. Well, I'm glad to have you here. And um, thanks again to um, your, your bosses at FPF. Um, so the... GPDR, um, GDPR was passed several years ago and has a leading uh, implementation date. Can you explain what the theory behind that was? Yes, absolutely. So um, the GDPR uh, legislative process actually began uh, in 2012. Um, and it took almost four years to have it um, adopted. Well, the legislative process in the European Union is a very complex one. Uh, you have a lot of institutions that are involved. Uh, you have the European Parliament, the European Commission, and the European Council, where all the governments uh, of the EU meet and discuss. Uh, but the GDPR was a, an even more complex process because, um, as Commissioner Vivian Redding pointed, pointed out numerous times, um, the GDPR was the most lobbied piece of legislation that the EU uh, dealt with uh, in, in its history. Really? Yes. And um, we're at, at least up to, you know, 2012, 2014, um, when she was made, making this kind of statements. Um, and uh, when we will talk about it um, a bit later, uh, it will become uh, easily understandable why that was the case. Um, so after a very, very long and complex process, when um, a lot of things were happening in Brussels and a lot of lobbyists, uh, were, were also there, uh, governments who were paying a lot of attention uh, as well to this piece of legislation. Um, it finally got adopted in 2016. Uh, and because it comes with um, some big changes in the data protection regime, uh, the legislator decided that there should be two years of, for a, a sort of a transition period for companies and um, other bodies that uh, use personal data, uh, you know, also public bodies, because uh, the, the GDPR also applies uh, to public bodies. So um, they needed this period to um, uh, actually uh, get their processes uh, right um, and um, to, to be ready uh, to, uh, for the GDPR. And um, what, what was the impetus for passage of the GDPR? Uh, sorry, can you can you repeat that? What, what, why, why was it that there was this even a need felt there was a need to update European privacy law? Oh yes, uh, that's a very good question, Bennett. Um, well, the um, current data protection regime 
um, was actually um, adopted in 1995. So we are talking about Directive 95 per 46. Um, and obviously, 1995, uh, we had... Nothing's had... changed, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nothing has changed. No, no. Um, well, I think in 95, everybody that uh, had a telephone was still uh, maybe, you know, using the wheel uh, one. Exactly, yes. <laughs> um, People still had Mickey Mouse phones. <laughs> yes. Um, so that, um, well, a lot of things change. And uh, the EU legislator felt that uh, the time came for the rules to change. Uh, however, for those that have been observing closely um, data protection law uh, in the past, um, the truth is that actually the changes are not that fundamental. I mean, there are some changes, but the core principles of, of data protection, uh, as it was uh, um, understood and applied in the EU, uh, stayed the same. And And so... It's just an updating, but it, it seems that the breadth is much greater. And I guess maybe let's start with um, who it applies to um, in terms of before I thought the European law applied to data that was processed in Europe. And now, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the new regulations apply to anyone who processes data wherever of European citizens. That is correct. And this um, is one of the reasons why uh, the, this piece of legisl legislation was so um, so lobbied <laughs> for or against. Or, um, that, that's why was, was that one of the fundamental points of opposition? Was the, you know, kind of the extraterritorial reach of it? Uh, that was certainly uh, one of the points uh, of, of um, debate. Uh, but I think early on, uh, early uh, early on, it became clear that um, this point was not really negotiable because this was one, uh, you know, one of the changes that was brought by uh, the widespread of internet and internet services, IT services, um, that um, you know everywhere uh, data can be processed. Um, so um, while indeed it was a point of debate. Uh, Early on, it became clear that it, it was not really um, negotiable. Uh, so, just to just to clarify here a bit, uh, indeed, uh, the territorial application—it's actually an extraterritorial application of this law, uh, because um, um, the provisions state that, uh, and uh, it's actually Article Three. Um, so, this provision states that whoever uh, processes um, uh, data of persons that are in the EU, so data of EU persons, um, uh, to provide them goods and services, or whoever monitors they behavior, their behavior while they are in the EU, then they would have to uh, apply uh, the GDPR rules. So let's, talk, let's start talking about some of the changes. One is data. Um, you know, what to what what is personal data and how is that different under the GDPR? Um, the definition of personal data was not changed uh, significantly, and um, it is very very comprehensive. And uh, it is comprehensive under uh, the current directive, and it is uh, comprehensive under the GDPR because it it, it technically um, covers any information. Uh, about an identified or identifiable person, and um, uh, that identifiable part is is the one that uh, generates a lot of discussions. Um, what right. happens? And that's what we're referring about pseudonymous data, correct? Exactly, that is correct. Can you um, explain for our listeners what exactly is pseudonymous data? Absolutely. Um, well, in fact, the GDPR uh, does not refer to pseudonymous data per se but refers to pseudonymization as a process that is applied to personal data. Um, and this is, this is quite a, a, an important clarification because uh, personal data that has undergone pseudonymization still remains personal data. And um, it is inside the scope of the GDPR. And pseudonym pseudonymization, um, um, of course, means that 
um, you know, you uh, it's it's the process uh, to uh, strip data uh, of uh, all um, uh, elements that directly name and you know identify a person right. and then keep those elements in a separate structure in a separate um, unit right. uh, yeah process um, and then the data that remains stripped of those identifiers such as uh, the name of a patient let's say uh, is still considered personal data as long as uh, someone um, can uh, re, re, let's say remarry the identifiers and, word, yeah. and the data. And, and that's a difference from the American perspective. The American perspective is if it's long as it's not you know, personally identifiable on its face, um, we're not going, you know, we don't treat it as personally identifiable information, correct? Yes, that is my understanding. And, 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 and so making something personal information is important because with that comes certain consent obligation, correct? That is correct. And, uh, well, this is actually, um, let's say, one of the myths, myths you know, that uh, is, is going uh, around out there, uh, that consent is um, sort of the only possible way um, to process personal data, uh, and th that is not um, uh, that is not correct. However, consent is one of the um, legitimate grounds that can be used by uh, companies to use personal data. Uh, but consent is just one of six legitimate grounds, and um, we also have uh, the the legitimate interests of uh, the company that is using data. However, um, this comes with extra obligations uh, for the companies to pay attention to uh, balancing uh, the rights of the individuals and their own legitimate interest. Uh, and this is this is an uh, this idea of balancing uh, rights is, is um, one of the favorite uh, tools that Europeans uh, like to use uh, when dealing with matters of uh, rights and fundamental rights. And, and so if I want to use the data, you know, for marketing purposes, retargeting purposes, I, I need, what levels of consent do I need from consumers to use their data? Well, the rules of consent have actually been uh, changed and strengthened. Uh, they used to obtain right. valid consent. Um, because, um, and to answer your, your question, you will need to obtain uh, explicit consent, um, informed consent, so uh, the individuals uh, would need to be disclosed uh, a lot of details about how you are using the data before uh, they consent. And, uh, and this is very important. Um, you will need to obtain free consent, freely given consent. And um, this, is one, this is one of the very big challenges uh, because um, in practice, this means that if uh, a user, you know, if a person uh, does not uh, want to have their data shared with third parties for um, various purposes, they should be able to um, just say no and uh, still enjoy the service that you are providing. Um, because uh, otherwise, uh, the consent will not be considered to be freely given. Okay, I get that. We're going to talk more about that, but first we're going to take a break. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report only on cranberry.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. How much are your best ideas worth? PriorThings.com gives you an added layer of protection for all of your intellectual property, ideas, and creative things. New business idea, pitch deck, PowerPoint presentation, song lyrics, source code, killer blog posts. We help you protect it all. How do we do it? We use the same technology platform that secures transactions for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Learn more at PriorThings.com. Check out exclusive listener pricing for Cranberry Radio listeners by going to bit.ly slash Founders Circle. Are you looking for the best in WordPress speed, security, and scalability? WP Engine is a digital experience platform for WordPress. 
powering digital experiences for large brands around the world. With easy-to-use site management tools and powerful do-it-your-way development features, WP Engine gives you the flexibility to build it your way. Improve your SEO and conversion rates with a faster site on WP Engine. Learn more on WPEngine.com. Looking for a better way to get more traffic and interaction to your Facebook page? Imagine Facebook interactivity on your page like you've never seen. Introducing your new Facebook marketing fix, So Social, the new and revolutionary way to easily manage and automate your Facebook contests and sweepstakes. Create a fun, easy-to-win contest by writing a simple Facebook post. Watch your post go more viral and generate loads of interaction. Track your traffic and generate email lists with ease. So Social is mobile-friendly and complies with Facebook terms of service. Let So Social give your Facebook page some flash today. Zoom over to zosocial.com. Is your website hacked? Is your website displaying error messages or loading slowly? Even if there are no signs of malicious activity, your site may still be compromised. Websites, like cars, require regular maintenance to perform at their best and not leave you stranded. At Fjorge, our website maintenance experts can help you assess which one of our maintenance plans will best support your needs. Visit FjorgeDigital.com or call 612-877-3840 and get the support and protection your website and business deserve. That's F-J-O-R-G-E Digital.com. Pick out some new favorite podcasts now at Cranberry.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Here is Bennett Kelly. And we're back, and I got a a brief announcement. You may recall earlier in the year we had um, Annie Goodson on to talk about her film, Kim.com, Caught in the Web. Well, yesterday the movie became available worldwide, or at least in the United States. You can now download it um, from iTunes, so... It's a very important movie, um, Kim.com, on the web. It's really about the, the three-year-plus battle going on between the U.S. government and Kim.com over copyright infringement. And uh, so definitely check it out. But we are talking about um, the EU GDRP, which is going into effect next May. And um, we were just talking about changes in terms of the consent level um, with Gabriella. And um, so, Gabriella... You made the important point at the very end before the break is that the level of consent is somewhat different. You can't just a lot of American sites have um, you know just this broad you know check here and agree to our terms and conditions and that includes you know all sorts of things. And in fact, uh, recently um, in uh, in UK uh, uh, free Wi-Fi provider actually included. Things in there like you agree to uh, wash public restrooms, and you know, we've seen all <laughs> sorts of things. And, and and these things, you know, just people just don't read this. And so now the EU is saying you have to have a separate uh, consent that where they clearly are consenting to the, how the data is used. And and if correct me if I'm wrong, you're saying also that um, if they say no to that consent, they still get to use the service that's being available for the website. Yes, uh, yes, that is correct, and that is um, because of of the rule that consent needs to be freely given. So then, all it all depends on what freely given means, right? Um, and we do have some guidance uh, in this regard from the Article Twenty Nine Working Party, and perhaps uh, the one that is most relevant is the one published uh, in June this year. Uh, even though it only refers to uh, processing of personal data um, in uh, work relationships, so processing of data by an employer um, and the data of uh, their employees, um, but the uh, the working party explains there what they think uh, freely given consent uh, means. And uh, why don't you continue? Uh, no, uh, I was just wanted. Uh, I wanted to add something about cons- uh, the, the new um, and strengthened consent rules, um, and because this is important to mention, that um, the companies uh, need to also provide the possibility to the person to withdraw consent at any time, uh, and uh, this would mean. Um, 
that this needs to be operationalized um, and um, actually this uh, right of the person to withdraw consent is uh, it seems to be absolute as in uh, they do not have to um, give reasons for it it does not the, the request doesn't need to be assessed before um, being um, you know put uh, in practice right they, they, it's a they can unilaterally withdraw yes and so from a, a website point of view, it seems last month, you know, on Bastille Day, we celebrated the anniversary of the French Revolution, you know, triggered in part by you know, Marie Antoinette's Let Them Eat Cake. And mm-hmm. at a certain level now with the, you know, the DDRP, um, the EU saying, let them have cake and eat it too. Um, basically, if a website wants to provide a service for free, um, but, the, but it's free because they're going to monetize the data... Um, if the consumers don't agree to monetizing their data, they still should they still can get access to the service. Well, uh, this seems to be the case. However, um, there are some other um, legislative initiatives in the EU that will look at this exact uh, same topic um, you are mentioning now. And um, well, one of them, uh, it's actually going to have, an equally big impact uh, on um, online uh, on companies doing business online, um, and that's the e-privacy regulation, uh, which right now it's a draft and it's in full legislative process. Um, and um, this regulation will uh, look at um, um, will actually apply uh, to um, more or less uh, all Internet of Things. And right. Uh, all um, companies doing um, um, business online and uh, to communicate it's it's actually about confidentiality of communications um, and it will apply to over-the-top services um, you know applic- apps application mobile apps that right. um, are nope. used by users and so on um, what, what? And, Go ahead. and then there's another there's another uh, legislative initiative in the EU um about digital content and that's it's going to be a very interesting debate as well there because uh, the question is whether you can consider personal data as um, counter performance for a service or not right and so that's and related to that in addition when i talk about monetizing data it's not just the websites that are monetizing. There are downstream, you know, companies, big data, which you know people. There's a marketplace for this data, and and so in getting consent, um, do how do I deal with consent for the downstream people who I share this data with? Well, this um, this is a, a very good question, and um, well, the rule is that you would have to um, inform um, the persons whose data you're using that you are going uh, to uh, use that data downstream, and then you would have to give details about uh, the, uh, what happens downstream um, before you obtain the, their consent. And if you um, obtain, if you correctly inform them, and if they give you the informed and uh, their free consent, right, uh, you 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 are um, good to go. Let's say, uh, but remember that they can withdraw consent at they any time. Try. So then it's uh, it's interesting like that. Um, talking about monetizing data, I think. Um, it should it, it must be mentioned here that in in the EU. Uh, the protection of personal data is actually uh, recognized as a fundamental right. Uh, we have uh, a sort of Bill of Rights. Uh, it's called the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the EU um, in, in, in Europe. And uh, the right to the protection of personal data is provided for under Article 8. And um, uh, perhaps interesting, uh, interestingly for, for your audience, it's uh, in fact a different fundamental right than the right to respect for private life or uh, uh, the right to privacy, um, as it's uh, called here in the U.S. So these right. are two rights protected separately. 
So uh, Europeans are very uh, much attached to this uh, value of, of protecting their data. And um, in fact, um, for instance, the EDPS, the European Data Protection Supervisor, issued uh, his opinion on, on the digital content uh, new legislative um, project, saying that um, from his point of view, data should not be considered as, uh, let's say, money, you, you know, should not be considered as counterperformance. Uh, but uh, this debate is certainly ongoing in Brussels. Well, what do you think the historical origin of that difference in viewpoint? You know, in the United States, yeah, the view on data, it, it all seems to emanate from this general notion of a right to privacy. And, and what, what, what informs or what's the historical you know, kind of antecedents that lead to this EU position? Uh, well, um the first uh, specifically data protection law uh, was adopted in 1970, uh, actually, in the German land of Hesse. Um, and then soon in the 70s, uh, um, Germany, um, Sweden, um, I think even Netherlands still in the 70s or early 80s started to adopt national laws to protect personal data. And um, at least in Germany, well, when this all started, um, it had a lot to do with uh, the experience under under you know totalitarianism, um, and um, with the experience of uh, knowing what uh, governments can do with the huge data sets. If they yeah, if they know yeah. what your religion is, if they know what your political beliefs are, exactly. if they know this, how how that can be used, and exactly. um, you know there are camps all across Europe that demonstrate that. Exactly. So then they saw that these machines were being um, kind of start starting to being invented, you know, these automated uh, systems, um, like the first computers, let's say, uh, more, more, of, more of automated systems. And then um, they, they tried to come up with a system of protections uh, to protect individual freedoms uh, um, against those that are using uh, data points about persons. And this system developed, but I think what's remarkable uh, for those uh, that are really interested in this, uh, if they look at those first data protection laws in the 70s and the 80s, they will see a lot, a lot of, of common principles that are still used today. So for instance, um, there has been a lot of discussion about the right to be forgotten, so the right to have your data erased right. uh, in recent years. But the Hesse law from 1970 contains a right to erasure. I mean, it's limited in scope, but it refers to it. Interesting. And yeah. So, um, you know, this, these principles have been there from the very beginning. And then um, in the 80s, um, it happened that the Council of Europe, which is another political organization of states uh, in Europe, uh, which, which is much wider than the European Union. Well, the Council of Europe in 1981 um, signed uh, a, an international convention uh, for the protection of personal data. So then all of a sudden, uh, all these um, ideas uh, and principles of data protection were raised at supranational level, right? They, they became the object of a convention, of an international mm -hmm. convention, uh, that was subsequently ratified by different states. Um, and uh, um, then uh, the European Union uh, in the early 90s felt that in order to provide a smooth common market for its member states, they needed to uh, harmonize all these data protection laws that appeared in different national states. And uh, this is how the talks about uh, having a directive to harmonize the rules started. And the directive was adopted in 1995 uh, with a common set of rules that were supposed to be then transposed into the national laws of uh, the European member states, the EU member states. Um, and um, that was the first data, EU data protection regime. Right, that's the data protection you know, um, that we work under now. Now, um, 
some of the consumer rights, you, you touched on the right to be forgotten, and, and your boss has actually been on the show uh, expressing his view of on the right to be forgotten. And uh, But one of the other elements that is granted to consumers under this new regime is data portability. Can you explain what that is? Yes, uh, and this is in fact uh, an, an entirely new right that is granted by the GDPR. So if for the right to be forgotten, we have some old forms um, in, in the previous legislation, for data portability, that's not the case. And data portability is uh, the right of a person to ask from um, a company or a body that uses their personal data um, for that data in a transferable, interoperable format in order to uh, then provide it to another company or another body. Um, and they also have the right to actually ask for a direct transfer between these two controllers, as we call them in data mm -hmm. protection law. Um, now, this is um, not, uh, I mean, this right, it, it's, it's limited. And um, for instance, um, it's, it's only applicable to um, data that is processed based on consent as a legitimate ground for processing. So um, remember that I mentioned that there are six legitimate grounds to process data. Consent is just one of them. You also have legitimate interests. You also have uh, the need to comply with the legal obligation and uh, processing data um, necessary to protect the vital interests of a data subject. Um, and uh, maybe one that it's more useful for private companies is um, the necessity to enter uh, into a contract with the, uh, the person. That's, that's a, a separate legitimate ground. Um, so um, the individuals can, persons can ask for uh, their uh, data portability right only when um, data is processed based on consent. That's one of the limitations. And so what impact will these regulations have on the, the ability to profile or retarget consumers? Um, the, the GDPR does not change a lot uh, of the rules uh, regarding profiling. Um, what the GDPR does is that it comes with a definition of profiling. So it defines what profiling is. Uh, but um, other than that, um, the rules are not fundamentally changed uh, regarding... Except uh, just so, for the, the consent aspect. Has. Except for the consent aspect, because indeed, yeah. so profiling um, it must be done uh, based on valid consent, right? When, uh, and um, perhaps what's important to mention here is that... Um, persons uh, have the right to object to decisions um, uh, that are made um, based on automated processing, including consent, but not, uh, not limited to consent. So all sorts of uh, solely automated processing. Think of algorithmic decision-making, mm -hmm. right? So they have the right uh, uh, not to be subject to a decision that is based solely on automated processing and that does not have uh, um, human uh, intervention um, before the decision is taken. Uh, now, um, they, they do not, the right is not absolute in the sense that uh, the decision uh, needs to produce uh, legal effects uh, for that person or needs to significantly affect the person in right for the person uh, in order for the person um, to have the right not to be subject to that decision. Now, um, one other thing that's that I guess is the concept that comes up through the new regs is this idea of privacy by default. And here in the United States, we refer to that as privacy by design. That's when you introduce new features, new products, that you have to do so contemplating privacy, not not necessarily trying to um, duct tape and you know, figure out um, how to implement privacy after the private product or service is released. Uh, yes, and this is this is also one of the new obligations introduced by the GDPR. In fact, 
um, we also refer to uh, privacy by design. Uh, well, actually, data protection by design. So both concepts, data protection by design and data protection by default, um, are um, um, in the GDPR under Article 25. And um, this this is going to raise a lot of complex prob- uh, complex issues in practice uh, because controllers, um, so companies, are under the obligation to implement data protection by design um, from from the design stage, right? When when they're starting to think of uh, a processing system or uh, when they're they're they want to implement a new processing uh, activity. Um, and um, this this is this is complicated because um, uh, it means that um, they they have to um, build uh, a GDPR compliant uh, altogether uh, system. But this is also something that was very important for the EU legislator because they wanted uh, companies to think about uh, these issues before they start doing things. And I think precisely because so often, particularly in the internet, if uh, we've seen features released and privacy kind of taking taking care of on the back end. But one thing we have to take care of is we have to take our last break. Um, but we'll come back uh, after these messages. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report only on cranberry.net. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Looking for a white-label SEO and social platform for your clients? Think eBrands. Free and unlimited SEO audit reports. eBrands. Premium Facebook apps and welcome page creators. eBrands. Twitter management app, analytics, and mobile site generators. eBrands. Let eBrands manage your search and social media campaigns and give you and your clients access to their white-label dashboard, which have great reports that will wow your clients and deliver great ROI and results. Try eBrands for 30 days. Go to eBrandsWithAZ.com or call 1-866-625-5717. That's eBrandsWithAZ for eBrands. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. Cranberry, Cranberry Radio. We're everywhere. Find our shows on iHeartRadio, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and anywhere you download your podcasts. Pick out some new favorite podcasts now. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Here is Bennett Kelly. Um, And we're back. And just a heads up, uh, I will be doing a joint webinar um, with the California Bar IP section on Tuesday from 12 noon Pacific to 1. Um, It's on the Representing Victims of Cyber Exploitation. It'll be with Erica Johnstone. And I encourage you to check it out. Information is available on our blog, um, cyberlawradio.wordpress.com, as our uh, background on today's show and our guests. So, um, with the few minutes we have left, it's, how big of a challenge is this going to be um, to come for U.S. companies to come into compliance by May? Well, I'm not gonna lie here; it's a big challenge. Um, it almost looks like a mountain for some of them, um, but for others, um, it's actually um, sort of a natural process um, of, of uh, let's say, development uh, after they have been dealing uh, already with the Directive 95 per 46. So it really depends a lot on the kind of experience they already have with dealing with uh, data protection issues in Europe. Um this, uh, while it is a very big challenge, it is certainly not an impossible task, 
And um, if, if you think uh, smartly about it, um, um, things um, are, are coming, are going to be uh, into place by uh, May 25th next year. And there's a con- I guess there's a consequence for not being having things in place by May 25th next year. And why don't you discuss the penalties involved? Uh, yes, um, there there are going to be consequences indeed, and uh, the penalties have been uh, probably um, the um, well, stealing the headlines. The penalties brought by the GDPR. Uh, because this is certainly one of the uh, big changes compared to the current regime. Um, uh, right now, uh, all member states had the um, possibility to um, adopt their own um, penalty system and their own uh, maximum penalty limits. Um, but with the GDPR, that changed. And now the penalty rules are quite detailed uh, in, in the GDPR and the level of fines is significantly bigger than uh, what we have right now. And um, uh, so we have two tiers of fines. Uh, the first one um, is uh, well stops at 2% of the global annual uh, turnover uh, or 10 million euro, whichever is the higher. Um, and um, this has to do, for instance, with the data security uh, provisions, data security requirements, um, data protection by design requirements. And then we have the second tier, which uh, provides for uh, double fines. Uh, so the fines. So 4%. Exactly. The fines and can go. Is that 4% up. worldwide? So if I'm Google and I, I have an oops, <laughs> is, <laughs> is that. Um, is that four percent in whatever country, four percent in the EU, or four percent worldwide revenue? It's four percent worldwide. Wow, uh, you know, that's that's the rule. So, um, and this uh, probably this has certainly been uh, the, the main reason, or at least the top three reasons, why um, the, the GDPR uh, raised so much interest and why it was uh, lobbied intensely. Um, there's an American saying, nothing focuses the mind like a hanging. And, uh, <laughs> you know, four, a 4% penalty for a company like Google or Facebook is enormous. Uh, I, I cannot argue with that, uh, certainly. And uh, what happens now is that um, I think the biggest penalty ever uh, in the uh, uh, EU, so uh, given by a data protection authority, was 400,000 pounds Wow. Uh, if I'm not uh, mistaken, um, so uh, that that's the biggest ever, four hundred thousand pounds. And under this regime, that would just be the the monthly interest. <laughs> <laughs> probably, probably. Um, so um, that's that's a lot. Um, okay, we only uh, have a few minutes left. Um, what is, are there? What? How do you document compliance under this regime? Well, uh, that will be perhaps the key to compliance and the key to uh, mitigate uh, these big fines because there are a lot of mitigating factors to bring down these fines. And if you have all your records uh, put together, um, that will help for sure. Uh, What what the company needs to do is to, um, first of all, have uh, a uh, register with processing activities in place. So um, that's an obligation under the GDPR, but it's actually something very helpful to have. Um, So um, you just need sort of a list with all uh, that takes um, into account all your processing activities, uh, what kind of data uh, is used by uh, each activity, what's the purpose of Mm -hmm. each activity, and things like that. And uh, beyond that, there are uh, all sorts of other uh, processes that can be documented. So uh, for instance, um, if a company um, chooses not to appoint a data protection officer, this is something that we, we didn't have the time to discuss uh, yet, but uh, there, uh, companies may be under an obligation to appoint a data protection officer uh, or may not. If they decide not to appoint, they should document that decision, you know, in one or two, three pages and just keep it, keep a record of it. Of why they did it, okay. Exactly. Like and we're then, not big enough, we don't have enough, you know, or we can't afford it or whatever. 
well, this we, that those won't be very good reasons not to okay. because the the criteria is quite clear. Uh, but for instance, if they think that they are not processing data uh, uh, on a large scale, then they can just um, uh, write about it and argue there uh, with the one or two bullet points, and uh, that will be very helpful. Um, then uh, they should keep their uh, policies uh, in order. So the privacy policy, the data security policy, uh, they should have policies for how to deal with requests from persons. Um, and this will certainly help when um, a data protection authority knocks at their door, they, uh, they can uh, provide all this proof that they have been paying attention and um, that they are, you know, doing their best efforts to be compliant. And um, we only have a few minutes left. So why don't you tell us um, where people can get more information about you and um, FPF and uh, and about this um, this issue? Well, um, we have a very, very nice website at, uh, of the Future of Privacy Forum. Uh, it's uh, fpf.org. Uh, we, you can also find there a privacy calendar uh, and you can uh, look up there all the uh, privacy related events uh, in your area, uh, but you also uh, can find their news uh, and uh, all the information about our upcoming events. Um, and you are also very much welcome to um, visit my uh, blog. It's uh, pdpeco.com. Uh, and you will find uh, a lot of uh, analysis uh, of uh, EU data protection issues going back five or six years, uh, and also current ones, of course. And we'll, we'll we'll add links to that to our show notes to make sure if users can can get access to that. And uh, but I just want to thank you very much. It's been a pleasure having you. And again, thank thanks for your boss, Jules. Um, FPS been a great friend of the show over the years, and it's an important issue. And I I, I wouldn't be surprised if we have you back because. And when the, the calendar switches to 2018 next year, I think a lot of people are going to be kind of very nervous about this impending May date. And uh, while a lot of people will consider that, that May, Memorial Day weekend at the beach, a lot of privacy lawyers will be working overtime to make sure they get everything ready by then. So thank you very much. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Um, tune in next week. We'll be here. Same bat channel. Um, this is Bennett Kelly with the Internet Law Center. Check us out at internetlawcenter.net. But until next week, we'll be here. And um, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Be safe. Thank you very much. Thank you. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and their guests and do necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of Cranberry News Marketing and Cranberry.fm. Rebroadcasts or retransmission of this content without proper consent is prohibited. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise, and with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.